Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the rest of Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Now, if Labour win the next general election, then we're probably sitting with the person who will become the most powerful woman in Britain, which will be a pretty incredible journey, given that she was a carer for her sick mum, age six. She was a single mum at 16. She worked in the care sector and then as a union convener, and then became an MP. And in no time at all, was on the Labour front bench under Jeremy Corbyn, and is now deputy leader. And says that she sort of models herself on what John Prescott was to Tony Blair. She would like to be to Keir Starmer. So welcome to leading, Angela Rayner. Thank you. That if did a lot of heavy lifting in that. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, if you're elected. <laughs> if we're elected. Well, I think you've got to hold on to the if. Yeah, I think Every you do, day. but you have to make sure that you hold on to that if. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, a week's a long time, especially in these times yeah. in politics. So you certainly have to hold on to the do, if. Do you think it's possible that you could lose the next election? I think it is possible. And what sort of things in your nightmares might mean that a party that's been nearly 20 points ahead for more than a year could actually lose an election, given all that, that the Tories have done for the last 13 years. Well, Rory, you saw what happened with Theresa May and the poll lead she had ahead of the 2017 and how did general she, election, how, and then it just kind of tanked when what, we got what, into what, the what, short what, campaign. What did you learn from that? What did she do wrong in that? Uh, I think it was the complacency in which she felt that she had a right and that she was going to get elected. I think the Conservatives were complacent. They were jeering. They were uh, jubilant almost in the run-up to that and they underestimated their opponent and they underestimated where the British public were. And I think I take some great lessons from that and I think you have to and you have to understand that people at the moment are angry with the Conservative government. They're angry at the last 13 years but that anger doesn't necessarily mean that they're enthusiastic about another political party. And you've got to understand that, you know, a lot of trust has been taken away from politicians because of actions of, of some. And therefore, it's really difficult for people to, to have that optimism that things will change, especially in really dire economic times. You were 17 when... Tony Blair won his first election in 1997, which honestly makes me feel really, really <laughs> old. But it's quite an interesting perspective 
mm. for you to look at that time. And I wonder what lessons you learned from that, because there was a feeling in the country then that we don't want them and we do want that. Yeah. That feels to me as the missing piece. So how in the coming months do you get to that missing piece where people aren't just saying, I don't want these bloody Tories anymore, I want that? Yeah, and I think the, the the strategy that me and Keir have had since we took over uh, the leadership of the Labour Party was first to recognise the thumping defeat we had and that the Labour Party, as, as some people who were close to me said, Angie, we didn't leave the Labour Party, the Labour Party left us. You know, the, my voters that voted Labour for a very long time said you didn't give us an option. And then they were very angry with us because they said, you, you're to blame for us having Boris Johnson. They still do not let me forget and, that. And I was, can I interrupt something? When they say you left us, what would be two or three things which made them feel that you'd left them? I think, first of all, is they felt that we weren't listening to them. They felt that we didn't understand the frustrations and they felt we weren't giving them a credible alternative so they didn't feel like we were an opposition that was ready for government. They didn't even feel we were a credible opposition, let alone a, a government in waiting. And they felt they weren't being listened to. They felt they were being taken for granted that we, you know, in our Labour heartlands, they felt like, oh, well, we were just expecting them to vote, even though we weren't necessarily listening to some of their frustrations. And our messages weren't getting across. We looked like, I mean, if you take the similarities to today, and this is where the Conservatives are in real trouble, is we're in chaos we were in fight and we wasn't looking outwards towards the country. We wasn't looking to the photos. We just looked like a, a rabble that was shouting at each other, whether you were a Corbynite or not. It was damaging for the whole of our Labour movement. And, and, and yet, something which the Tories are absolutely gunning for care over and will probably do to some extent with you as well is the fact that you, you all sat there and went out onto the airwaves and said, Jeremy Corbyn would be a fantastic Prime Minister because that's your job because you're in the shadow cabinet. Do you think that, I mean, and that was the big thing, wasn't it? It was, it was Jeremy as much as anything else that people were rejecting. Yeah, there, were, there was the issue around Jeremy, but I still think that that Labour government would be better than what we've got. If you look at the COVID inquiry, Boris Johnson is on the stand today. And, you know, it's appalling what happened. If you looked at our manifesto at that time, there was commitment to NATO. There were good people around that shadow mm. cabinet that would, you know, it's not a presidential election. We knew that Jeremy had weaknesses. I, you know, publicly, I said that I didn't think Jeremy was a good leader because because he couldn't make decisions. He was he was all over the place. You know, I like someone who, I, I might not agree with you, but make a decision mm. and stick with it and then stick with the principles of why why, you, why you're making that decision. So, but we were, we were a party that was dysfunctional because not everyone was trying to get us into government at that time. But for me, I've seen Labour governments and I've seen Labour leaders and I might not have agreed with everything that Tony Blair did as leader. Why not? Because, because I don't. <laughs> don't answer that. Don't because answer I don't. That. But, and, but the thing is, is that it really made a big difference to people's lives, people that, are, that needed opportunity, that needed that hope. People like me in 97 who had a young baby who um, had government ministers at that time saying I got pregnant because I wanted a council house. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing to say. And feeling scared, feeling like where's my life going? And then having a government that was saying, actually, I'm going to, if you work hard, if you do this, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You can go into education again. Yes, you failed your GCSEs because I was looking after my mum and I had other issues. It wasn't because I was thick and I couldn't do it. Um, okay, we'll give you a second chance at going to college for free. We'll give you opportunity. So it was a government that was really listening to and understanding the challenges I faced, but then putting solutions forward. So that's why I felt 
in those years that, yeah, I needed to be in government. And I still, to this day, I'm, I'm eight years I've been on the front bench, eight years. And in all those eight years, there's only been one time that I've really felt it made a difference. And that was when I worked with Justin Greening on the sex and relationship education in schools. But other than that, I feel like not made much of a difference at all. Can I lean into that for a little bit? Because I often felt very frustrated. Can you sort of explain to listeners why it can often feel very frustrating because from the point of view of the story that voters are told is here are these members of parliament, the shadow cabinet, these are very powerful people that, but actually often members of parliament feel quite powerless and you can, eight years can pass and you feel, just talk talk that through a little bit. I mean, it's not particularly a political party point, but just the experience no. being an MP and white can be frustrating. Well, I've heard what you said about that and there is, there is part of that, that, you know, you've got the whip, you've got the... But, I don't know what other solution there is to that because I do believe you have to have some discipline. This is why I think the Conservatives are in real trouble at the moment because there isn't any discipline at all. And they're actually the government, which makes it even more scary than the opposition being in that situation. Um, but it, you've got to get people, and I suppose this is why I've been more successful in, in Parliament in the years I've been there, is chaos is something that I've got used to. That's my life. That was my childhood. So it was like, okay, this is wild, but that's what I'm used to. Uh, and then it's about building bridges and about crossing people's dividing lines and finding a, a way of getting people and politics a lot of a lot of people think it's about legislation and and bills but it's not it's about people it's about understanding an argument and it's about trying to convince others of your argument and then working ways round how you can get there now listen you mentioned your childhood there let's just focus on that for a bit because it is a you know people like to say all oh, MPs are all the same they all come from the same sort of backgrounds blah 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 and there were you. First of all, tell us about your dad and your mum. Well, my mum and dad, I mean, my mum had bipolar and um, my mum, I called it a learning deprivation because my mum never went to school. She was one of 12 on Wivenshaw Council Estate, the biggest council estate we had. And she said, I followed the fair. That was my mum's assessment of her childhood. And, and, and her, her parents have been doing what? Her parents, they didn't work. So it was, you know, um, I remember going to the local social club every Sunday with them when the lads would smoke in one room and the girls would play bingo in the other and we'd wait for the fish man to come with the prawns and we'd have some of them for 50p. And that was every Sunday night. But my mum never really never really had a belief in herself. So my mum had this learning deprivation. Um, she couldn't read all right. and Because she'd never been to school? She'd never been to school. No, she never really went. So she couldn't read all right. She had this learning deprivation. And uh, all my mum wanted to do I was sorry, was, Can I just interrupt quickly? Yeah, sure. how, how common is that today for people to actually manage to avoid going to school completely? I, mean, I, think, it, I think it still is common. And I think at least when I was at school, and I, I, I lost my... Uh, belief in education, probably about the age 12, 13, because I started, I was quite feral. And the outside world was much more interesting to me than school ever was, because I was already already behind because I, I, my mum couldn't read or write, so I hadn't seen a book. So when I went into yeah, school... No books at home. No books at home, no. So when I, when I went into school, I was already behind my peers. And then as you step up into secondary school, it gets a lot harder. And I was already just about keeping up because I was behind everybody anyway. And homework wasn't a thing in our house. My mum couldn't help me. My dad wasn't, he was out. So, um, so yeah, so when I got to secondary school, things outside of the classroom had more of an impact on me, whether it was things that I found more interesting or crises at home. So I was already behind. The one important thing about my childhood is my teachers and my school kept me in school as long as they could. They kept me safe. I was on the books. Today, 
those kids, if you can't get your teenager into school, they're off-rolled. The school will come down on them and say, you either homeschool them or you're going to be fined or you're going to have this. So these kids are dropping out of the system now earlier than before. And just tell me about your, your mum's bipolar disorder. How, how did you perceive that as a child and, and what what was her life like? What's her life like now? And what's what do you think the impact on you has been? I think when I was growing up, I was really angry because the house was dirty um, I didn't get the support that my friends did. You know, my mum couldn't cook. I used to go around my friends' houses to ask for Sunday dinner. Like, can you ask your mum and dad if I could stay for dinner? And they'd say, you can't stay today. You stayed yesterday. Angie would sit on the curb outside and wait for them to come back out and play out. I was really angry at my mum because and I just thought... Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got two siblings, but I was the eldest daughter. So Q in my household, it was the, it fell on me to to look after my mum and, and to to be around and do as much as I could. But I was really angry with my mum because I felt like I saw other people's mums. And I thought, why is my mum not like that? Why doesn't she do these things? And I thought my mum was incredibly lazy and selfish. And I didn't really understand how mental health could really debilitate people. And now I look at my mum and I think she's an absolute hero because I've never been in despair at that point I've never been and, and I don't think it's something that you can rationally do but I've always tried to have my own resilience to never get to that point because I've seen where people go when they get there and it's not nice and it's awful for somebody to get there but for my mum to with her challenges for my mum to dig herself out of that place time and time again I think that's heroic now but and at did, the time I didn't see that as a child and did she have the the ups as well as the downs and were they both as bad for you yeah I mean my mum would have said it at the time and she still says it she said I could only love one person and that was your dad so if my dad was being nice then my mum was happy if my dad was out then my mum was miserable her whole life revolved around tell my dad about, tell us about your dad um he was just what I would describe as typical like I would say working class but he didn't really work that much when we were growing up but he'd be out you know he'd be out in his car he did the CBs and the, the, remember in those days CB everyone had radio. CB oh radios and all of that so um, he'd be out Citizen doing that. Citizen band radio the young producer is saying what's <laughs> None of them have an idea I mean luckily your listeners probably. <laughs> Some of them we've got a lot of young <laughs> listeners we've got a lot of young listeners. <laughs> they might they might know what we're talking about I'm showing my age now as well um, but yeah my dad used to be on the CBs and he'd be out it was just a thing he'd be out he'd, and, and we wouldn't really we wouldn't, it wasn't my dad's responsibility actually, I, I, I to look really after us like what, what is, tell us what you do on Citizen Band Radio what, what, what's he doing he's just calling other people yeah so they'd go up to like a hill yeah. like a, they'd, they'd have the, in the car they'd have like these aerials he had home aerial kits as well but they'd have these aerials and then they'd channel 19 as anyone could speak to anyone and then you'd move it to another channel and they all had nicknames but it's like an early form of social media yeah, yeah, yeah it, it really exactly is yeah. It was. yeah exactly yeah I can't so. believe you. Do you know, maybe you are but you're younger than he is you're younger than me yeah yeah, yeah it wasn't really. just a class thing cb radio wasn't it was like it was like a it was a phase wasn't it it was a, it was a real it, yeah it was like a fashionable thing to do for a while for a number of years so, so. where are your mum and dad now so um my dad's in bolton mm -hmm. and my mum's in um stockport in hazel grove she's in supported tenancy so she's got her own little flat and it's she's got a communal area and they all look after her and she's very happy there and, and how old is she now uh, my mum, she's in a, she's about sixty-five now. So she's and younger so, than me. And, and should so, she, yeah. And in retrospect, should she have been supported much earlier? Oh, if she'd have got, if if there'd have been support for her much earlier interventions, then I reckon my mum would have had a much different life. That's why I go on and on about Sure Start, and I'm no, I'm, I'm not making a political point, go on. but Sure Start, right? 
my mum couldn't hug us. My dad was my mum's world and universe because she was brought up to think you're nothing without a man. Okay. So everything in my mum's life revolved around this one individual and that's all she wanted to achieve in life. We were byproducts of my mum's relationship with my dad. She had no love in her life. She didn't get cuddles. She didn't know what healthy relationships was and she didn't know how to be a parent. I grew up in that environment looking for love in all the wrong places, not having any self-worth for myself and not making good choices. It was the 90s, early 90s. This was a dangerous time for girls like me off council estates. I, I could have got myself into serious trouble. But however, when I had my son, it was sure start going there, realising I didn't cuddle my child. I didn't spend any... I, I changed his nappy. I put him to bed but I didn't give that emotional support because I didn't realise I didn't have that. It was. It sounds silly to say it, but my ex-husband, when I see him with the children, he, they jump all over him. He's so loving and it's just so natural to him. I had to learn how to accept my kids jumping on me and giving me a cuddle because I'd recoil. It'd be like, it's too much. Even now, I saw my brother last Sunday and I gave his, I gave his partner a cuddle and we both looked at each other and was like, Nah, because we just don't do it. And was there ever any risk when you were growing up that you would have been taken away from your mother, that people would have put you in care because of what you were describing? I mean, there could have been a risk of it if it wasn't for my nana. Right. So my nana worked three jobs and she we used to go to my nan's on a Sunday and she'd make us tatty ash, potato ash. It's a great, great uh, dish with dead fresh bread, which we never had at home because there was no bread ever at home. So we used to just that was like... Your, and your mother's mother? That's my dad's mum. Your dad's mum. She used to look after us and we go we there. Have weekly bath. So we have our weekly bath, rank order, brother thirst, me and my sister and then my mum in the same bath water. And then my nana would have a twin tub and she'd do our washing for us and, and wash our uniforms and we'd have our food there. And then we'd walk, walk home the two miles from my nan's on a Sunday evening, freezing cold sometimes to and get back. Would If your mum was, was listening to this conversation now, how would she feel about what you've said? I think my mum my mum recognises like our childhood and she's quite angry now because she she's more understanding of how debilitating her obsession was with being a wife and being in love with my dad to the point where she wasn't resourceful to have her own resilience to to make her own decisions and and I think she looks back on it with some regret but she's she's also incredibly proud of all three of us because my brother and my sister and me were all you know, doing well, we're all successful in our own field and, and we're all incredibly what's good your, people. What's your brother and sister doing? So my brother served in Iraq and uh, he used to be a dye engineer before that on his old YT scheme. And and now he, he does like building maintenance and security. So he manages a big building. And, and my sister, she's part-time mum and also and part-time working at um, a company, and, parcel company. And as you just just she used to work in banking, and then you, she got had babies, and then she took time out to have you, the children. Your story is is unbelievable, obviously. Um, and often, when you talk to people with these incredible stories, you hear them saying that they had very, very fierce ambitions or dreams in their early teens. But I'm not necessarily picking that up with you. It, it wasn't no. particularly that. When my you were only dream in my teens was to learn how to drive legally. So that I could be have the freedom because I can fix cars as well. So I, I could do like, I, I'm, I'm not a qualified mechanic, but I can fix cars. And when did you begin to develop the ambitions to be a politician? 
I never had an ambition to be a politician. In fact, it was quite an adjustment for me because I went from a home help uh, who had rose through the ranks of the union to look after collectively the home carers, um, which were all paid very poorly, but very well respected and loved mm. to be paid very well to everybody thinking I'm a crook and how dare you, you're just in it for yourself. I was like, wow, this is this is quite a change. It was poacher term gamekeeper if there was ever one. Just sticking with your, your family life for a bit though, so, so you, you were a mum at 16. Yeah. And then you had another relationship, two boys, one of whom is quite severely disabled. Yeah, he was born at 23 weeks. Yeah weighing less than a pound. He was 465 grams. So he's like one of the tiniest that has ever survived, my child. And, and he's blind? He's registered severely short-sighted blind, Jay. He's a little tiny bit, but not much. Yeah, and he has, I can never say it, the dyslexia for numbers. I can never, discalculus, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. He, has, he has epilepsy as well. Right. So that's tough. Yeah, but he's such a ray of sunshine. I always say my Charlie is the kid everyone thinks they're going to get. Really? <laughs> yeah, because he's so adorable, like nothing ever phases him. I remember him coming out of nursery and uh, he's running to get to me. He was so tiny and he, he looked so, you know, like the Milky Bar kid because he had these mm. massive, huge glasses on from about the age of six months. <laughs> and he looks, because prem babies always look a bit mangy, like they need a, need a dinner. So he's all like with his big glasses on and he's like waddling to me and the pavement dips. Because, you know, I get the dips in the pavement. Obviously, he can't see it. And he goes flying. And he literally scrapes his face along. I'm in tears. I'm in floods. I'm like, oh, my God, Charlie. And he's like, mummy, I'm okay. And he's stroking my face as he's got gravel and his glasses are all scraped. He's stroking my face. And that's Charlie. He's such an adorable. He's doing his GCSEs this year. He's absolutely worried sick about them. And I'm like, son, I've set the bar low in the family. I'm trying to reassure <laughs> Anything him. Anything better than zero yeah, is good. Yeah, I'm like, I'm trying to reassure him. But he's really, you know, and I think a lot of young people today are, are like that. They're on this treadmill of, if you don't see there then you're not going to be successful and and I can see the pressure that's on young people today and my child is one of them but he's like he's breathing he's achieving the doctors told me four times they wanted to switch the machine off they said there's no hope for him and he's 15 walking talking having the best time of his life that's great that's great and listen just about your I suppose you, you said you, you didn't expect want to become a politician, expect to become a politician. So was it the trade union route that, that led you in that direction? And how did you get on that route? Yeah, well, the trade union route wasn't one that I knew about either. So I worked in the private sector as a home carer because it just about have anyone at the time. And I wanted to work nights because my nan said she'd look after Ryan when he was a baby um, after she finished work. And that's the night shift. And I wanted to work because I really did not want people to think I was what they expected of me. So I had this real sense of needing to get out and do the work. They being the people that said you got a pregnant to get a council yeah, house yeah. type people. Uh, I, people like that. There was this, you know, people like me, we were considered like write-offs and I really didn't want to be that. I wanted to prove I could be a good mum and part of being a good mum for me was providing for my child. Just, to talk about this, this sense of being write-off, was this something that you picked up from who? From social oh, workers, it was, from television? It was through from, everything. From, from the school, moment from... I went into school, it was steeped in everything. Teachers were people that told you what to do. They weren't people like you. Police were people that kept you either kept you out of trouble or you know, were around to sort you out. You were not police. Social workers were not people like you. It was it wasn't people that just said they're not people like you. It was the whole system put you in your place right from the and they still do try to put me in my place you watch my timeline and you'll see there is people that will still say yeah Angie's all right but she's a bit thick 
How can I be thick and be one of the most successful politicians in the UK? How can I survive? You've been in that environment, Rory. You've been in that environment. How can I survive eight years as I have if I was stupid and you know, could, couldn't understand And do you things. think this is a class thing? And yes. You, and where have you felt that most? In the Labour Party, in the unions or in Parliament? Um, I think I felt it throughout and I only understand it more now. Like, I, I didn't see myself as a feminist before. I, I used to hate all women shortlist because I thought, I'm, I'm as good as any man. But the truth is, there is unconscious bias in, in our society that, that does that. We do, I, I do, you would, you know, we do. If I, if I saw a group of lads with a hoodie on and I'm walking past them at 10pm at night, I'm probably going to feel slightly more apprehensive than I would if I saw a little old granny with a little wheelie chair going past me at nine, ten o'clock at night. I'm sorry, it's just an unconscious bias. It's mm. not fair, but, and I think we've still got those in society today. So I have to constantly feel like I have to prove myself in, in any environment I've been in, whether that's the union movement or whether that's um, in Parliament. Take us back to the unions. So how did you first hear about the unions? And then there's an amazing Guardian profile of you as a union official. That's and right, I guess yeah. sort of 2012 maybe? Yeah, yeah. 2011 it was, 2011, yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell us about the journey to that and then describe a little bit what the Guardian's describing of your daily work as a union official, what you were actually doing day in, day out. Well, it's kind of the same as what no one's ever sort of gifted me where I've got to. I've always been elected and I've always had to prove myself. No one's ever said, I'm going to appoint you to that job. I've always kind of, like I say, the, as I was saying, I became a home help because nobody wanted to do the night shift and in the private sector, they'd take just about anyone on. So I was there for a while. And then um, some of the girls I was working with said, oh, the council are employing people. And if you work for the council, you get a proper contract because I was casual, zero hour in them days. And then you get sick pay and you get your travel time paid for. So I, as my uh, ex-boss, who I'm still in touch with affectionately says, I was the last home help in Stockport Council. So I got in there and, and that's how I got involved in the union because no sooner had I been employed to work in the council, they wanted to outsource the home care service. And I'm like, I've just come from the private sector. It's terrible. Why would you want to do that? So I started speaking up in this in this meeting and some of the girls I was with said, you, you need to be our union rep. And I'm like, what's a trade union? And I literally became the union rep overnight. You, you honestly didn't know what the trade I honestly were. did not know what a you, trade union was. You no. weren't a, a Labour Party house that talked no. endlessly about the miners' <laughs> no, strike. And... I really didn't. No, no, I didn't know anything about it. The, the most left wing we got in our house is my dad used to religiously buy the Daily Mirror. Good on him. Right, that's the only thing, but he, that's as far as it went. It was straight to the back page. It was, it was straight, yeah, probably to the back page, yeah, and cutting out the free ticket to Calais. And we'd go over there and that was the family holiday. Um, but yeah, so I went into the, I became a union rep and then realised that the union isn't all it cracks up to be at times either because I'm like, right, we're going to fight this. We need to do this. What help are you going to give us to the branch secretary? And they were a bit like, well, we don't do it like that. Yeah. And that's a good impression yeah, of Jimmy yeah, yeah, at the yeah, time, yeah, 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 yeah. Our, our branch secretary. So he, I became a bit of a nuisance, but it was really funny because um, I'd only been a union rep about six weeks, but I was a young member, right? So I was a young female member and in unison at the time for your um, full delegation to go to conference you had to have two females out of the five and one had to be a young member otherwise the guys couldn't go and you were the only one. so I went into the office and Jim's like right yeah kid I've got a holiday for you 
I'm like, an holiday. He's like, I'm going to take you to Bournemouth and pay you 40 quid a day. And, and all you have to do is sit in this room for a couple of hours. So I came out of it and I went to the branch chair at the time. I actually thought he was trying to like have sex with me or something. I was really worried that this guy was trying to take me on a free holiday so he could have his wicked way with me and pay me. I'm like, I'm not that sort of person. And the branch chair had to explain to me, no, he's just at our quotas in terms of like representation meant that he just needed you and there for, for that reason. Trade Union Conference or Labour Party Conference? For trade Union Conference, right. yeah. And the so, Trade Union Conference to this day is, I mean, I know we've got some amazing women leaders of the unions now, but it's still a pretty masculine environment. It can be, yeah, it can be, yeah. We've got, we have got, we've got Christina McAdee yeah. and you've got Sharon Graham in, in Unite. So the two big unions mm. are now led by women, which is really fantastic. Uh, but yeah, that first conference was a real eye-opener, but I only went because uh, it was a free holiday and there was like, <laughs> it's like, you've got a crash for your kid, 40 quid a day, Ange, but so you, you don't have to pay any spending money. And what about Parliament? How have you found Parliament as an institution being a... Yeah, that's even woman. more wild. So it goes in there and um, it can be quite seductive because there's our oh, mom, people open doors for you. There's a status, you know, it's like, it's, oh, this is right, honourable, oh, hello. And then like, even on the front bench where you sit, there's a status in that. Even I've got a three-seater sofa. Like Rory knows, three-seater sofas just, in Parliament is real estate. That's it's real stuff, estate. Yeah, stuff, so yeah. You also became... A shadow cabinet minister, shadow secretary of state for education, a year after you'd got into parliament. That's so un- right. Unbelievably quick. I did I mean, pensions before then. I did. I was in the whips office, and unfortunately, two that I was whipping within a couple of months died. We had Gerald Kaufman mm. and Michael Meacher. So the whips decided that I'm probably not. I'm not right for the whips office. They've had enough by elections. So, um, but, but, it's, I, but nobody's ever been promoted at that speed. It's unbelievable, no, isn't it? No, but um, we were in a particularly chaotic. And 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 the thing is, for me, I was I wasn't a carbonite. For me, it was about serving. It was about, you know, you're here to do a job and I've been given an opportunity. It was really scary for me because I'm like, I have, I've been here five minutes and I've got shadow pensions and I got shadow pensions when we had the Blake review, massive, big 800 pages, a single tier pen- state pension, Tata Steel and one of the other BHS, I think it was, pension schemes went down and the whole argument around DB or DC pension funds. So I took it on when there was so much going on. Then there was moved to education and then we had <laughs> the biggest reforms <laughs> to education. And just to explain to listeners, so you're coming and you've been in Parliament a year and suddenly you are a shadow cabinet minister, you're managing your own team of junior ministers. You're no correction, up- we didn't have any junior <laughs> ministers either. We had no staff and no ministers. The only one I had was Gordon Marsden, bless his little cotton socks. And, and there were no ministers because they were all refusing to serve yeah. under Corbyn. Yeah, and then and everyone was throwing Westminster Hall debates in and everything to make us crumble. I remember I had to so, do... So again and again and again, you yeah. were at the dispatch box I had to in get Parliament up there. In, and, and you were taking on the Tory yeah. Education Secretary and all the Tory Junior Ministers. Who's the, yeah. who pensions for the Tories then? Um, oh, they had a couple of different different ones. I, I, they were, I can't even remember. They had quite a few different yeah, ones. Who's, were you against Gove on education? Uh, no, Gove had no, gone, Gove by, had gone yeah. by then. But I, I went through four four or five education secretaries as well in my time because I was shadow education for four years. But I remember the first debate under Corbyn with the Tories and they obviously were jubilant because they could see the chaos that was going on. I had I had no barely any staff. Presumably you would have been under a lot of pressure from colleagues if they were all choosing to scotch their careers and refuse these oh, shadow yeah, yeah, cabinet yeah. positions. Yeah, it wasn't And they're refusing time. to be junior ministers and you, they must have been angry with you. They must have been like, yeah. we're all boycotting Corbyn. And some of them must I mean, have felt I could have been I mean, the Parliamentary Labour yeah. Party meeting on a Monday night was not 
a nice place. It was and, like a and bear they been, pit. And they would have been angry with you because they would have felt, many of them would have felt, I could have been Shadow Secretary of Education. I refused to take it yeah. because I was trying to take down Corbyn. And now we've been undermined by you. But I respected a- their position, but I also was quite frustrated myself because I'd just come in and it's like, look, people have put their trust in us. You've got a conservative government which are trying to do terrible things and you're meant to be the opposition. So it, I wasn't about, I don't care who the leader is. It was about people needed to see that we're fighting for them, not fighting with each other, but fighting for them. But, but the reason this, this is, resonates with me is that that's the defence that my colleagues make for, I refuse to serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet. Right? And I was very, very angry yeah. when other people were prepared to serve. And of course, people like Ben Wallace would say, oh yeah, but you know, somebody's got to be the defence secretary. We've and to be fair, Ben did a good job. I'm glad he did. Because at least he was there. I, I think Boris Johnson, and you could see that through the COVID inquiry, was at, you, were, you were also correct. He was not the right person to be prime minister. But Ben got in there and steered us through some very difficult times and did it, I think, reasonably well. You know, I remember I had a problem in my constituency. Ben came down. He's like, he's never got, Tories are never going to, you know, get anywhere near my Ashton underline seat at the time. It wasn't an election mode. He, he came down because he believed in getting rid of tackling the criminals who were making people's lives hell in my constituency. And I dragged him and, down and, and he was when, there. When he was the security minister. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under Theresa May. Yeah. Yeah. And you've sort of given a sense of the dysfunction at that time, but what was Shadow Cabinet like with Jeremy as leader? Um, it was, I mean, I might as well, uh, I might as well have just had it in this room with all the microphones on, or at least then you could have put your own spin on it, or at least have had it in your own sort of, your own language, because the stuff that came out of it, some of it was spun, you'd be impressed with the spin they put on, on some Believe of it. Me, I wasn't. So, um, I'm, I'm not just talking about Jeremy's team, I'm talking about everybody. It was, it was dysfunctional. It was but dysfunctional. At the same time, I mean, it's in Theresa May's cabinet. And you might as well have the microphones on there too, because every single thing, yeah. suddenly Liz Truss and Gavin Williamson were being quoted yeah. in the newspaper. And you can't function sort of, like that. Yeah. You can't. And and that's the difference now is that we were in opposition and it was bad enough in opposition, as, as people said to me, you gave us Boris Johnson because they couldn't see us as a government. The challenge we've got now is we've got this level of dysfunction at the heart of government and I've had that for a long time. So, so you support, in terms of care... Seeming to want real discipline. Yes, you're you're totally on board for that. Yeah, I think we do have to have discipline. Yeah, we do. And do you? We had a question on our question time episode. This but week. I was disciplined when Jeremy was leader. Yeah, yeah, and, and I believed now. in that as well. Yeah, we had a question last week on our question time program, which was, "Is Labour still Labour?" Now I said yes, Absolutely. but it was interesting that question was asked. Mm. Are you at all worried that in trying to win over? the people that Labour needs to win over, that Keir's maybe trying to push you a bit too far towards the centre? I'll always have my arguments behind the scenes about what I believe in and what I want. But as I said before, I've never really got everything I want. I'm a trade unionist at my heart. You know, I try and get the best I can get and, and ring fence what I'm up to and, and make the difference. But you have to be realistic about what you're able to do. And I think what Keir's trying to explain as well is, look, the situation, if, 
if we were lucky enough to win the next general election, the situation we're going to be in, we're not going to be do- able to do everything that makes us all warm and cuddly inside because we don't have it. A classic example of this was when, you know, everyone was in up in arms and was like, everyone was desperate to speak to me when Keir said we're not going to do free school meals for our kids because obviously I was a free school meal kid. And everyone's like, Angie, you must be opposed to this. And I was like, but we're bringing in breakfast clubs because that's what we could afford. And we also knew that would make the biggest impact. So it's not as binary as that. People like to think that you, you choose one thing there and it indicates that you're right wing on that or you're this. It's not as binary as that. It's about realistically being able to make a difference and, and challenge the fact that in government, you can't do everything you want to do. And in the constraints of what we're going to inherit, we're not going to be able to do everything we want to do, but that we can do things better and do different things. Uh, Alistair was saying um, when we were chatting yesterday that of the two big issues which have been talked about in the last couple of weeks, which is Gaza and Keir Summer's comments about Margaret Thatcher, the more difficult thing is Gaza, that in the end, you know, he can make comments about Margaret Thatcher and Sunday Telegraph, that's not really going to have an impact. But Gaza is a real thing. Do you agree that Gaza is, is more important than Margaret Thatcher? And, and difficult for the party. Yeah, because Gaza, you can see, like, you can see what's happening there and everybody, everybody can see the destruction. They saw what happened on the 7th of October. They're seeing the humanitarian crisis that's unfolded and everyone's desperate to stop. They can see it on their screen. Everyone's desperate to see that end and that outpouring is it's an emotional connection to what's happening there and completely understand that as a mother and a grandmother. I completely get get that. You joined the Labour Friends of Palestine, didn't you? So that was a cause that... Yeah, I used to, I was a regional convener for the northwest of Unison and we used to put lots of money into the Palestinian cause and I still support the Palestinian cause and I still want to see recognition for the Palestinian state. But in the context of where we are, what Keir is trying to do in his limited way as the leader of the opposition is to get to a situation where those hostages, that people understood what happened on the 7th, that people really understood what happened to Israel on the 7th of October, that people were butchered, murdered, raped, slaughtered, over 200 hostages taken, rockets still being fired into Israel at the same time as seeing what's happening to the Palestinian people. And he wanted to get to a position internationally and working with our government, so we spoke with one voice, to get to a situation where we could stop the violence. We could deal with Hamas because they cannot be allowed to continue to threaten Israel. People in Hamas have said they want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. That's never been Labour Party policy. We, of course, want to see a Palestinian state, but Israel has to be recognised absolutely like Britain is, like Germany is. It's a state, it's there, and it has a right to be safe and secure. But the Palestinians do as well. So there has to be a long-term political solution to it. And Keir was trying to navigate his way through that to get the violence to stop, to the recognition of what the horrific situation that happened on the 7th, to get to a situation where the Palestinians are protected as part of that process, but also in his chat and mouse speech, which I thought was incredibly important, was about the political steps to not pay lip service, because everyone says, well, we want a two-state solution, but actually challenge what's been happening on the West Bank, challenge the occupied territories, and also make sure that we challenge where Israel have been having rockets fired at it, and that's been happening time and time again and also find that peaceful solution where we recognise the Palestinian state. That's what people deserve in that region. I I, I love the way you you can be disciplined with Jeremy and now disciplined with Keir because I I think you're right, you've got to be disciplined, particularly if you're in government. But I just wondered your relationship with Keir, which is important, 
it did seem to have a wobble around the time of the aftermath of the Hartlepool by-election. There was all the talk about the yeah, reshuffle. That's when I that. found out I'd been moved by press. Exactly, it's not yeah. helpful. <laughs> and you, you, you weren't having that. Well, it was, it was just but, disrespectful, to, uh, if um, nothing else. Moved by press means that instead of calling you and telling you, you suddenly found out in a newspaper headline. Yeah, I think it was more that time ran away <laughs> with Keir and he, he didn't get a chance to tell me before my team had a press inquiry about how I was moving. So it, it wasn't the nicest moment of mine and Keir's, but, but we it, came out of it stronger. Yeah, We both came out of it stronger, actually, because, you know, you've worked with people before. You have your, hey, hang on, this is, here's our lines, you cross one. And then it's like, right, well, how do we work and constructively make sure that we don't get in that position again? And since then, me and Kira have had a very healthy respect for each other. And do you see the, the sort of Tony, John Prescott parallels? I'm, Is, a, I'm kind of John Prescott-y and Barbara castle and a bit of everything in between. I think even just kind of, you know, describing yourself as giants of our movement is pretty awesome to me. But I just try and do my best. I just try and do, like, people have put a lot of trust in me to be a politician and to be a working class female politician from the North, I feel a real sense of obligation to not screw it up, to prove to people that girls from my background are intelligent and can achieve things. We can roll our sleeves up in any environment, including male-dominated environments, and we can get things done. And that's what my focus has been. And that's what I continue to focus on is like, no, I want, you know, if we're lucky enough to get into government, and nobody thought me and Keir could turn things around, and I accept the Tories have helped us significantly in that, uh, but nobody thought we could turn the party and change the party in the way that we have. We've got a real opportunity to make real change in the country. And if we get that opportunity, I want in five years' time for people to say, yeah, look, she's proven she could do this. OK, quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. get something which sort of feels a bit more personal to me, which is that, I mean, I, I think you are come across face-to-face as a very, very warm, sympathetic person. But in public, for someone like me, I really felt, you know, e- even as a, a voter, let alone as a member, I wouldn't really be welcome in your kind of Labour Party. Um, so, I mean, Why this, is that? The, well, you know, you cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, misogynistic, absolute yeah. pile of banana republic, Etonian yeah. piece of scum, right? Yeah. Um, and do you and, want me to? Uh, I'll yeah, explain yeah. that. That yeah. was because they said I called Tories that I didn't. I was fuming Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, who had made the most appalling comments, racist, misogynistic, homophobic comments. And I'm like, hang on, if I did that as a home help, on minimum wage, I'd never work in the care sector again. That's my prime minister. How can you look down on people like me who would never ever say anything like that, let alone think it? If you said that, the stuff that Boris Johnson has said in my local boozer, you'd be thrown out. You wouldn't get to the bar. You wouldn't get anywhere near it. So we've got a prime minister who thinks he's a posh boy, who looks down on people like me who thinks he can get away with saying things like that. So I expressed it in the wrong term amongst comrades. But I was fuming because this guy was sanctioning people for benefits, telling people who were in food banks that they need to work a little bit harder, like literally criminalising people who shoplift. They put like tags on baby food. They put tags on women's maternity bras because people can't afford the maternity. You don't go robbing maternity bras. These are essential items that people needed. Yes, they shouldn't go shoplifting, but no realisation about the difficulties that working class people face and the pride that they have. They don't want to ask for things when they've got to get a handout. People don't like that. It's humiliating. But he was going around making those comments and I said, I said, I will apologise. And it was him I was calling out in his cabinet who was accepting it. I said, I will apologise. And I did in the end because I didn't want people to abuse Tories because that was not my intention. I wanted to call out Boris Johnson and the hypocrisy. I said, I'd debate him and we can, he can apologise and I'll apologise for my comments. And we could have a full on debate about why he thinks it's acceptable to make the comments he made and then call me out for calling him scum for it. Would you welcome Rory into the Labour Party? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still have constructive conversations and relationships, friendships with Conservative MPs to this day. I just mentioned before, Justin Greening, me and her work really hard on sex and relationship education, Bill. Joe Johnson, he's Boris Johnson's brother. I get on extremely well with Joe Johnson. I still do to this day. We opened up an arts college together the other week. So it was not conservatives that I had a problem with. It was with those people who look down on working class people who makes comments that quite frankly, you'd be arrested for in the street making those comments. And he was our prime minister. It's like the hypocrisy just stunk to me. So Rory, that made you feel better? I'm not sure it does. Actually. I, I mean, I th- look, I, I detest Boris Johnson. He's a terrible human being and all that kind of stuff. But I, I wonder... Um, Is it the scum word you didn't like? Because the rest of it seems to be perfectly fair. 
you know, we, we talk a lot about polarization and populism and antagonism in politics. And clearly, Kirsama seems to be trying to lead a movement which is trying to be welcoming of yeah. people who would have voted conservative in the past. And I wonder whether this kind of, I, I understand your anger, I understand your language, but it doesn't emotionally come across to me as, great, this is a party I want to join, I'm going to feel at home, she's going to welcome me in. It feels like anger. Yeah, well, maybe I need to work on that a little bit more because you would be welcome in the Labour Party. And, you know, I've always had people, these people in my family, not my, my family are not left wing. You know, I used to talk about it. You go to a family do and you, you have to convince the one, you know, that leans a little bit UKIPy. You have to have that conversations with him. I used to say this at fundraisers because I, I recognise that, that people have different views. But where I mark the distinction and, and it's, it's was... Just, just sorry, I'm being really unfair. Yeah. But, but obviously, from my point of view, leaning a bit UKP is kind of offensive to me. Is it? Yeah, trying to win over a centrist voter like me. I, yeah. I don't want to be no, characterised as no, somebody no, who's no, leaning no, a bit no, UKP. I think that's not the yeah, yeah. point. She doesn't come from a Labour tribe. Yeah, it's like those people who have very different views on issues that what, I have. What do you think my views are? Well, I'm not saying you're leaning a little bit UKP. I'm saying that uh, that's what I used to say the analogy was. People in my family who have very different views mm. politically you, but, but, than but, but, I do. But, but let me give you the opportunity. What do you think the views of a left-wing conservative are, a centrist conservative? What do you think we think about the world? Okay, I think you think that people should be able to get on. I think you think people should be able to go to university and do the things they want to do. I think you care about the environment. I think they care about animal rights in particular. I think they, they want to see a public state that looks after people when they need it, but isn't overly utilised and isn't overly burdensome. And they want to see, you know, people have lower taxes. And, and the, the, I say the biggest analogy, I would say, the difference is, is that they believe that people can get on by themselves and should have the rewards of their own success and wealth. Whereas I actually have a different view on that because I think some people, I've been quite lucky, I've had help and assistance, but also I don't blame other people for their misfortune if they've not been as fortunate. So I would say that's the big distinction between me and a more moderate conservative is it's not people's own success to why they get to where they are necessarily. Yes, it's there is a bit of that, but actually I also think that you also need to have a little bit of luck in there and you also have a bit of society and you've got to pay that back. That's the difference, I would say. Strangely, on that second thing, I, I very much believe it's about luck. It's more the right wing of the Conservative Party who thinks, you know, get on your bike, tebbit. I mean, I I'm very much come from a tradition that believes that a lot is to do with luck. I, I don't think that when people are, are well off, it's because they've just deserve it or they've worked harder. I think that's that's more the right of the Conservative Party. So if, if Labour do when you become Deputy Prime Minister... And God forbid, Keir fell under a bus. Do you think you could step up to the top job? Absolutely. Yeah, I work closely with Keir now. Absolutely. Because I can make decisions and I can look at evidence. I don't think I know everything. That's the big difference. And there's some people that go into those jobs. And I think Keir's very similar to me like that. He will always look at the evidence, frustratingly so for some people. Because, you know, people think that I look at it from a purely sort of emotional sense. Mm. It's not true. I feel the great sense. I, I understand where my emotions come from and why I'm hungry for it. But I feel a great sense of responsibility to do my homework because of I didn't have 
a formal education because of my background. So I do my homework whenever I've come to a position and I've led the front bench and the opposition in those fields. It's because I've done my homework and I've, I've made a decision based upon what I believe to be the facts and also what I believe to be the right thing to do. And I've worked in a consensual way to get there. And I've not been arrogant to think I know better than everybody else in the room. And I think you see through the COVID inquiry, the dangers of where you get to, regardless of people's academia or background of arrogance when people think they know better than other people. One of the things you do very, very powerfully and which is very important is speaking for a part of society that's often ignored, people like your mother. But there are other bits of society which politics ignores, uh, in particular, for example, prisoners. And I feel the public don't think enough about prisoners. It doesn't matter enough in votes. But our prisons are horribly overcrowded. Both parties seem to be in a competition for ever longer prison sentences, locking people up more. And frankly, we, we don't have the room. They're built for about 65,000 people. They've got about 85,000 in them. If you continue down the route the Conservatives of Labour are going down, you end up with 120,000 prisoners and nowhere to put them. When are we going to hear Labour speak compassionately for conditions for prisoners? And above all, be practical about reducing sentence lengths so we don't end up yeah, with these and recognise why the disproportionate amount of people from different backgrounds that end up in prison and, and why and how they end up there. And you've got to have a preventative approach because, you know, I talk about when I had my son at 16, he changed my life because I had someone to look after and I had someone to be responsible for because I had no self-worth. So I could have got myself into a lot of trouble when I was younger. I could have chose a different path. I was already leading that way, as I alluded to. Uh, there were things outside the school that I found far more interesting. So I was going nightclubs at 14 and getting mixed in with the wrong crowd. And I, I could have, it was quite dangerous. I could have been in a very different place there, but for the grace of God, I ended up in a different place and took a different path. But the challenge we've got in the criminal justice system at the moment, far too often there's people in the criminal justice system that have not been given an opportunity to get, whether they've got mental health problems or whether it's poverty or whether it's substance abuse. There is a lot of people in our prisons at the moment that quite frankly shouldn't be there. And the only thing that happens when they go into prison is they become more acute at being a criminal. It doesn't actually solve the problem. I, I agree so strongly. And 35% you know, of prisoners have been in care, 40% have been excluded from school. As you say, biggest use of mental health, biggest use of poverty. But all I'm hearing at the moment from the Labour Party is being ferociously tough on crime, putting out stuff saying, do you think that people who sexually assault children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't under Labour, 1,600 more people I mean, that is different. The most serious of crimes, and this is, pardon the pun, our crime at the moment, that the government are going to release people early. and Because our prisons are completely yes, overcrowded. Yes, yeah, and they're overcrowded with the wrong bear I say the wrong type of prisoner how are you, you know how are you going to because sort that out? first of all you've got to sort out the system at the moment which are crumbling public services that are locking off rolling the kids that are locking people out of the system from a very young age and therefore you're storing up the problems all the way along you've got to have a good thriving public service you've got to have jobs that people could go into but that's, that's, and opportunities that's a five ten year solution but the problem, that, is, the yeah. problem you're going to face next year is prisons crowded the bursting yeah, yeah. and if you go around endlessly asking for longer sentences, not letting people out, you're going to end up with far too many people in the system. Now, you may over 10, 20 years be able to address the root causes of crime and address it from early childhood, but that's not going to 
Yeah. Deal there's with your other, there's other ways to deal with some crime. There is other ways to work within the system. Our probation service, for example, our youth justice system, our youth services, our social work, all of these avenues at the moment are totally crumbling. So part of our resource plan, part of our looking at the whole approach to how we support communities is about trying to do some of that work. These people in prison that quite frankly are in there that could have been prevented. Now, I accept you can't do that overnight. I accept there is a challenge in that. But there is also a problem now where people who should be in prison are not in prison because the whole criminal justice system is completely crumbled after 13 years of the Conservatives. You see, the first part of that discussion was kind of music to our ears because we're both obsessed about prisons and, and the state that they're in. And what I was, maybe this is wishful thinking, but what I kind of hear, and sometimes I think this about Keir, tell me if you agree with this kind of broad analysis, that the, there's a possibility he will be far more radical in government than he has been thus far in opposition. Because I can't believe for a minute that Keir actually really thinks that the criminal justice system can carry on as it is, that the prisons can carry on as they are, that the probation service doesn't have need massive investment, etc. But until he gets into power, by being fiscally responsible, by being serious grown up in a way that Johnson's never been, he's kind of playing very, very, very safe. But he's also realistic about what we can do. Keir's been really clear that our number one priority is to grow the economy. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to fix all of our crumbling public services unless we grow the economy. Otherwise, we have to raise taxes and we're not going to be raising the taxes. With tax burden on working people is the highest it's ever been for a generation. So the challenge for us is to grow the size of the um, the growth strategy that we want in the UK so that we can afford our public services and reform of our public services as well. And that's what we've said, because in a lot of these areas, there is a real challenge around reforming what's happening there. It's, you know, we haven't got enough probation. We haven't got enough early intervention. So we're putting loads of resources at the far end, which costs more money. You know, my mum, if my mum has a crisis, but there's no outreach, you can't get an appointment with a doctor, she'll ring me. What happens? My mum ends up in A&E. She ends up needing acute care, costs loads of money. Just give her some help when she needed it. And then it would have cost the state a lot less to do that. So you've got to be able to reform the system to get the intervention where it's needed the most. And you do get payback from that. It takes a bit of a leap of faith as well, because, you know, I did this in home care when I was um, the union official in Stockport. We turned it around from a deficit budget to a surplus budget that we gave to learning disabilities because we were able to work in partnership to keep people out of hospital who were reoccurring offenders of going back into hospital because they didn't get the home care. So we worked with GP commissioning units who funded and it took a leap of faith from them to fund through because it's a different public body to give us the funding and let us manage it. And we kept people out of hospital. It saved so much money that we were able to give money back to the local authority. I, I, I agree. So it works. I, I agree. but uh, And it helps people when they need it the most. What about my question about whether you think he'll be more radical in government? I, I think he will be. I, I think he will be radical. But he's, you know, great British energy and, you know, the Green Prosperity Plan and, and the stuff I'm doing around New Deal for Working People. These are big reforms that will make a huge difference. The planning, planning reforms we're making so that I can build council and social housing that we know we desperately need in this country. New towns that we've announced we're going to be doing. These are big, huge reforms that will make a big, huge difference for our country. So I don't think he's lacking being radical. I think the mess that we're in at the moment means that you also have to be realistic, that you're not going to fix everything overnight. And what have you got to offer for your friends, 
colleagues in the trade union movement, if they were thinking about voting Labour, what will the trade union movement benefit from a Labour government? Well, my new deal for working people is once in a generation opportunity for us to really rebalance. Tell us about it. Tell us about the content. The context of it is that, you know, banning zero hour contracts, rights from day one, overhauling sick pay. I mean, some of my conservative colleagues agree with me on these things because they see the imbalance that we have at the moment. You know, fair pay agreements to really tackle and setting social care, which is one of the most challenging areas to do it. But I know it can be done. And that's why I've said it to tackle the scourge of low pay in those areas and and terms and conditions and reform for training. So there is a huge package within that new deal for working people that will empower workers in the workplace who at the moment there is an imbalance. Now, the best employers understand that my new deal for working people is brilliant and they're on it because it's good for business as well. It's good for our economy. There is poor employers out there who have poor practices towards their staff and it is damaging people's lives because you're not in secure work. You can't get on. You're in low pay. You can't exercise. There's so many people at the moment that you've got rights at work and they can't exercise their statutory rights at the moment. So those reforms will give people more empowerment in their workplace. Now, my final question, two parts to it really. First is what role do you envisage for yourself during the election campaign? I'll be out there. I'm going to be out that. there. I'm going to be that. everywhere. I know that. But the, you know, the, the focus is so much on the leaders in these campaigns now. So I'm specifically, how are you going to be a big part of that campaign? And then secondly, I guess, are you ready for the, the nastiness that's going to come with it in terms of a pretty desperate Tory party and their many media supporters? Well, they've been slow cooking me, haven't they, for a while. Mm. So it's not like I haven't had a few moments Has like that been that. helpful to be slow cooked? In the long run, probably. But it's very painful when you when you're going through it. I think the lowest moments was, you know, Boris Johnson, what is it, Traitor Bill? And I remember during that, that period, it wasn't long after we'd lost Joe and we were in the chamber. Joe and, Cox. Yeah. And Paula Sheriff got up. She was an MP at the time and she was in tears and she said, I'm I'm getting death threats, you know, this anyway, bah, bum, I, I was I was there. Yeah. I was there. And, yeah. and some of the piling on that you get it radicalizes people the way in which our social media networks work at the moment it radicalizes people to approve their views and then also go that one step further so it becomes more of a challenge in this day and age to respectfully disagree and there's people out there that take it to another level and and that could be quite scary when we've had two members of parliament in a very short period of time murdered in their constituencies it does make you think you know and certainly when I've had to take measures to look after my family that bit of it is it has changed me as a person I don't go out with my mates as I would do before and because I know if if I went out for a drink with my mates as I would have done as most people do every now and again you only need one picture of you with your eyes slightly closed because you were blinking and that's it you look absolutely there's this picture that goes around social media of Florence Welsh from Florence and the Machines and they say look at the state of Angela drunk it's not me (laughs) (laughs) but it just illustrates the you know the yeah but you can't stop being yourself no I haven't stopped being myself yeah I am me but I also am aware that you carry a great sense of responsibility in the work that we do and you know you just try and continue to to do that okay as my last question your story is unbelievable right you're an incredibly smart successful person who left school at 16 with no GCSE. You're going to get trolled for calling me that now. You do realise that. He doesn't mind. He gets trolled for far worse. (laughs) Look at the jumper he's wearing. Uh, Look at the jumper I'm wearing. Um, I mean, without being immodest, reflect a little bit on what those qualities are because it's not the thing that normally makes sense, right? I mean, you wouldn't normally, and you must have felt this when you were 
shared mm. a secretary of state for education. We're telling all our kids they need to do well, study yeah. well, get the GCSEs so that they can become Angela Rayner. And here you are as an example of somebody who didn't do any of those things. Mm. And you're able to talk fluently about labor history, about the economy, about this and that. So tell us a little bit about two or three things about yourself, which you think made that possible. So I think I had adversity growing up, but I also was nurtured by the state, other people that looked after me. And there was, my nan looked after me in certain ways and my teachers did and going to the youth club on a Friday and and, and that being a home help, meeting people that are professors that needed me. The role reversal, people, professional people that all of a sudden in their last months of their life needed my support and help. So I mixed with different people for the first time in my life, having to be resourceful because I had to look after myself. So I learned a level of resilience and I've got a master's in real life. I got a vocational PhD in real life because I've had to live it and I've had to go through it. And as painful as it is when you go through those moments, I learned from a very young age is you can survive it. I learned from my mum's adversity that you can get through it. But I also learned how incredibly painful it is. And I also learned that you need to reach out and get help. Sometimes you can't do it on your own. Nobody can do it on their own. You have to do it with other people. And and that's kind of what's got me through my life. I'm very resourceful. I collect people, especially people that are different from me. I, I'm, I'm one of these type of leaders that think, I know what my strengths are. If I've got a weakness, I bring people in that plug that weakness for me. So I understand that. So I've just been an incredibly resourceful person because I've had to survive throughout my life for different challenges. But those challenges have not broke me. They've strengthened me. I'm going to cheat and have one final, final question. You mentioned Barbara Castle earlier. If there's one thing that you could be remembered for as a government minister, what would it be? Council houses. I'm going to build the next wave of social and council houses. Nice ones, green ones, ones you want to live in. Very good. Thank you very it's much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Rory. Your next deputy prime minister, mm. possibly. Sorry, first seat, without being too sort of obsequious, I was really impressed actually by how tough you were there. Because oh. that's cheered me up. It makes me think that maybe when Labour gets into government, our, our podcast has an opportunity. No, I thought you were quite good at putting her on the spot about some quite difficult issues. Oh, I didn't at all. I thought we were having a <laughs> rather polite conversation no, no, with that, somebody I really hope wins the next election. No, no, that, that, that cheered <laughs> me up. That cheered me up. Um, I mean, I think she's very, very articulate, very impressive. Um, she's also a very skilled politician. I mean, clearly her whole background puts her in a very uncomfortable position with what the position Keir Starmer's taken on Israel Gaza. And yet her answer was absolutely practiced down the line. But emotional. Emotional, Passionate. full of examples, full of passion. We've had a lot of um, people saying that you and I both been trying to be doing this sort of, well, on the one hand and the other, let's be reasonable yeah. about both sides, yeah. et cetera. And it's becoming quite difficult. Yeah. Very interesting to see whether she gets any flack and pushback. Oh, I think some of my, my friends who are passionately angry and horrified by what's happening in Gaza will hear that and feel that she wasn't talking enough about what's happening in Gaza. Mm. Very smart as well, referring to Kia's speech, which was almost saying, I hope people go away and read it. Yeah. But I, think, I also think the way that she's got a... So she came in, sat down, not a note, sort of no, none of that asking us what we're going to talk about. No. First question, straight in, very, very personal responses to every single question. Well, also, I mean, her, her life is 
absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, she calls herself a working class person, but actually she comes from a much, much poorer background than most working class people. Mm. She's describing a, a mother who grew up in a family of 12, neither parent working, not sent to school. I mean, she really has touched something which is is a part of the um, part of Britain that I often feel that we don't talk enough about. In fact, it's something that always made me uncomfortable as a politician, that often when politicians talk about poverty, they're talking about, as it were, the bottom 40%. But she's speaking up for the bottom 5 or 10% mm. of society, which are in a completely different... You know, her description of her mother's house, the life she's living, is very extreme. Well, I remember talking to her before when she was saying that when she first arrived in Parliament and there was some of the Tory MPs who would sort of essentially so it's the one from Shameless, you know, the Shameless, the TV, mm. which is actually written by a guy from Burnley about kind of real brutal working class poverty. And I think it would be amazing. I think it's amazing to be deputy leader of the Labour Party in opposition, coming from the, the background she came from and the struggles she's been through. But to get into government on that would be transformative for so many people well, in terms of aspiration. And particularly if she can speak up for that community, because I noticed that even when Ed Miliband was Labour leader, he didn't really speak for that community. He was speaking all the time for the squeezed middle. Squeezed middle yeah. You know, that, that's the community where you really see real extreme poverty in Britain. And there's a, there's a report out today I saw, I think OECD, but we now are at the top of the league of the increase in child poverty. Increase in child poverty, yeah. Over the last seven years. And, and, and also slightly horrifying statistics that both in the US and the UK, average height of six-year-olds has declined by one centimeter. It's a Lancet article. So I, th I think she's wonderful. And I do, I mean, obviously I do worry a little bit about the swing voter. I mean, she may not care particularly about the swing voter. Oh, I think she does. I think um, she does. But I, I didn't think that she actually fully empathizes or understands where somebody like me comes from. She, she's trying. She's trying hard. She's like, you you like animals, right? <laughs> she's trying to think of things to say that are, that are nice about Tories. Um, Shall I say how I would have answered that question? Yeah, go on. What would you say? Well, I, I think you have a real patriotic feel for your country, believe in fairness, believe in strong defense, and actually do think that there are traditions that are worth preserving, but where there are people denied opportunity, there is a role for people like you and me and others to help them. That's lovely. And actually, Keir Starmer, I think, to be fair, does a pretty good job of pitching to people like me when he says, listen, I understand we need to be fiscally conservative. I understand the sums need to add up. We want to be compassionate. We want to help people, but we're not going to bankrupt the country and we're not going to go down some crazy kind of socialist dream. But of course, I wonder also for business people what happens when they hear the talk about workers' rights and all the stuff that she's trying to do there, because she's trying to go beyond what you did in New Labour. Those will be things that will be perceived by some businesses and more yeah, restrictive although on Although the Resolution yeah. Foundation report that we talked about was pretty strong on yep. greater role for trade unions, yep. workers on boards and that kind of yep. thing. I think what is interesting that I guess it's seeing things through the prism of your own life, but it is interesting to me the the Tony Blair, John Prescott thing, because I can see, I mean, John was a formidable politician, yep. no doubt about that. And I can see Keir and Angela having a similar sort of but, but she's dynamic, not, the words together. I think they should use her a lot in the campaign. But she, she's not quite like John Prescott, is she? She's different, isn't very she? Very different. Yeah. Very different. I mean, John would have given you some very different answers to you. If I doubt John would have done the interview with you in the studio. Can't we do it down the line? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, Keir, look, Keir's from a working class background, but he's Sir Keir, he's the lawyer, he's the kind of cerebral guy. You saw, I thought it was really interesting, one of two points. For example, when she thought you were taking offence at what she said, mm. the UKIP thing, she got quite emotional. Mm. 
very emotional about her her kids mm. and the disabled son in particular, but in a very, very positive way. Mm. And I think that emotion, even though it can put some people off, you know, you do hear people who say, oh, well, I can buy Keir Starmer, but not sure about the Northern woman. You know, you do get the odd taxi driver sort of saying that. But I think that emotion's got a real no, place I, in I, our I think she's a, I think she's a star and she's a very, very natural politician. And I think she's probably one of the most impressive people on the on the Labour front bench by a very long way. I, I think they're absolutely right to use her. I, I still haven't quite got to the bottom of this extraordinary story, which is, as you say, she got not a single GCSE, and yet she is clearly unbelievably well, there's one story she told in a previous interview about her mum who couldn't read, feeding them dog food because she couldn't read the labels. I mean, you know, to live, uh, you, and, you and I, I've been in your house, you've seen mine. I can't imagine a house without books in it. Yeah. She grew up in a house without books because her mum couldn't read or write. And here she is on the verge of being deputy prime minister. It's amazing. This is this is the stuff of Hollywood. And, and actually, maybe you're right about the Prescott thing. So maybe, uh, maybe just sort of finish on this. I guess John Prescott wasn't the guy who was out there trying to appeal to the floating voter. That was Tony Blair. He was Pre tickling the party's erogenous zones. So Prescott was more playing her role, which is appealing more to the party's left. And it would have been weird for me to say to John Prescott- no, not just to the left, but also to working class people. Yeah. But it would have been weird for me to say to John Prescott, what's your offer to me? How are you going to convince a soft Tory to come across? That makes more sense as a pitch to Tony Blair than to he, Prescott. Yeah, it would, but what John would have said, well, what are you going to vote for, going to vote for this rabble again then, right. are you? He would have gone straight for the attack. Whereas I think Angela has at least tried to formulate an argument. Right. And hopefully if she listens to the debrief, I've given her the best way to persuade Rory Stewart to come over to Labour. I'm still working on it, very Angela, good. promise. Good. Well, thank you very much for getting it. All the best. Thank you.